and the laughter, a note of seriousness. They're watching Peter Casson, who has proved the power of hypnotic suggestion to be well beyond dispute. The reactions of his subjects are genuine, as he now demonstrates the power of post-hypnotic or delayed action suggestion. Whenever you hear the tune, so tired played, you just carefully go to sleep. The small wonder that, on waking, the subject looks surprised, for he knows nothing of the orders he has memorized. If he ever sees this film, he will still know nothing, for he will fall asleep whenever this tune is played. and they awake without sign of distress. It's good, clean fun. But stage hypnotism is not without its critics. There are those who argue that its use should be confined to the surgeries of trained medical men. To show you the more serious side of hypnotism, we take you to a consulting room to see how it can be applied to psychological problems. In a very different role, we again meet Peter Kasson. You are going deeper and deeper to sleep. Very deeper to sleep. Just relax and go deep to sleep. You are now a child of six once again. The patient is harassed by an instinctive fear of dental treatment that amounts almost to terror. Now the hypnotic treatment begins. You are six. Come on. Tell me about Nanny. What did she look like? She was tall. Had black hair. Did you like her? She went away. Tell me more. Mummy said it was... Hypnotism is serving as a shortcut to mental depths which a psychiatrist might need many long hours to reach. As she peels from her memory the layers of suppression which have thickened through the years, the hypnotist is able to get to the root of her troubles. That seems a little peculiar. Are you sure she had her teeth out? It sounds as though she died. Or... Tell me about it. Come and tell me everything. And you associate... Some of the details are personal. But already the cause of her phobia is becoming clear as her mind surrenders its burden in that strange, dark sleep. Yes, that's it. Now you're feeling quite peaceful and calm. Completely relaxed. And not at all worried about having your teeth out anymore. Now... I wanted to wake up, feeling fit and well, quite happy, gay and full of life, thoroughly refreshed. So, wake up now. Come on, wake up. Wide awake. Hello. I've been to sleep. You've not only been to sleep, you've been back to when you were a child of six. <laughs> six. Yes, and you've been telling me all about what was the cause of this fear of dentists. I'm not the 
Gosh here. Listener, are your psychic self-defense systems operable? Are you ready to break into Dr. Murray's Harvard Psychology Clinic and rescue the poor hypnotherapized veterans therein? Are you ready to bust down the doors of St. John's Orphan Asylum and free the dissociated orphans from the clutches of the mad Dr. Estabrooks. We'll continue with this line of inquiry that has us hitting the veritable stacks today chasing down modern-day mass hypnosis and micro-mind-control's ancestors in World War I-era hypnotherapy and veteran organizations like the American Legion. Although we'll be concluding the William Dudley Pelly saga soon enough, this episode will be a little light on the wannabe American Fuhrer side. In large part because we'll be turning our attention towards Europe more and more over these next few installments, working our way up to Hitler's hypnosis and juxtaposing our investigations into the hypnotizing of American World War I veterans with their German equivalents. Speaking of which, Interestingly enough, Hitler and a figure that I'm about to introduce were both gassed in the same area in Belgium during the quote-unquote Great War. I'm referring to OSS and MKUltra hypnotist, psychologist, and longtime Colgate University faculty member George H. Estabrooks. Their respective inhalation of chemical weaponry most likely occurred on different dates, but it appears, at the very least, that they both suffered complications from gas exposure in or near to the same place, a Western Front battleground in Ypres, Belgium. I was having the hardest time relocating the quote that brought my attention to this quasi-synchronicity, but I finally found it. Quoting from Colin Ross's The CIA Doctors regarding the end of Estabrooks's World War I service, quote, He was in the German gas attack at Ypres while participating in a gas attack drill behind lines, he was exposed to mustard gas because of a tear in his mask. This almost killed him and eventually resulted in his being sent back to Canada. He developed tuberculosis and spent time in two TB sanitaria, one of them in Switzerland. There, he met his future wife, the daughter of a Swiss watchmaker, whom he married in Rome 12 years later on July 20th, 1933. Estabrooks and Hitler both experienced the horrors of chemical warfare in the same area in Belgium. 
If I'm understanding Ross correctly, though, in the Estabrooks incident, George was a victim of mustard gas-friendly fire and equipment malfunction, contrary to an enemy gassing. My hunch is that both men were hypnotized during their recovery. I'm more confident in Hitler's case, as the evidence supporting his hypnosis by Dr. Edmund Forster appears more compelling. In Estabrooks, I've found numerous references to him becoming interested in hypnosis following the military accident that brought his tour to a premature close, which seems to indicate a connection there. I've yet to find definitive record of it, though. But before we continue, it's spiel time. Reminder to subscribe to Parapower Mapping on Patreon to gain access to the full version of this episode. Additional reminder that there's still time to sign up for a free trial and get a cue or research clue in for the very first Cues and Clues EP. I'm already working on a couple prompts with some stalwart uh, para-power mappers, and let me tell you, we've got some bangers on the way. So you better act fast. What are you waiting for? Seriously, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? That's right. Your right arm is relaxing. Your fingers are growing sleepy. They feel as light as a ten set of hummingbirds, just like pure air. The rest of you is growing lighter and lighter. You can't wake up now. Your hand is reaching in your pocket. It's pulling out your phone. It's pulling out your wallet. You're going to patreon.com slash capital P-A-R-A, capital P-O-W-E-R, capital M-A-P-P-I-N-G. And you're choosing subscribe. You're entering your card information if necessary. And now you're listening to PPM on repeat 24 hours, 8 days a week. Let's get those listener numbers through the roof. LFG. Did I do it? Are you hypnotized? Okay, you can wake up now. (laughs) Just kidding, listener. Old Clonny would never do you dirty like that. This is a strictly anti-hypnotic zone here. I mean, come on, the show's catchphrase is literally stay critical critters. So don't you worry. Let's talk a bit about the man, G.H. Estabrooks, shall we? This 32nd-degree Freemason and Templar really was the archetypal American hypno-fascist. And to think that he would go on to use the same methodologies he publicly formulated during World War II to program enemy agents into single-blinded hypno-moles for the CIA a decade later. Canadian-born, Estabrooks grew up in St. John, New Brunswick. The son of a steamboat captain, in the years after World War I, he would become a naturalized American citizen. Legend has it that at the age of 19, he was the youngest commissioned officer 
in the first Canadian division. Which brings us to the previously mentioned gas attack. The story goes that, following his exposure and the TB that arose from complications caused by his condition, George became interested in hypnosis. Of course, just like Langer and other figures, historical and fictional, that we'll discuss in these episodes, my guess is that Estabrooks himself was likely hypnotized in an Allied hospital. After his recovery from chemical warfare-induced tuberculosis, if that's a phrase, he enrolled first at Acadia University, where he became president of the student body and the local YMCA. There it is again. The Young Men's Christian Association shadows our investigation into the intersections of hypnotherapy and fascism every step of the way from W.D. Pelly in Siberia to Estabrooks in Canada. Quote, His record at Acadia won him a Rhodes Scholarship, and he studied anthropology and education at Oxford and Exeter, 1921-24. to In 1926, he was awarded the Ph.D. from Harvard. His dissertation, done under E.A. Houghton and William McDougall, was entitled Racial Intelligence. End quote. Who'd guess that a Rhodes Scholar might turn out to be sus as fuck? Estabrooks is yet another node in the interlocking nexus of hypnotherapy, veterans' orgs, Massachusetts higher education, and American fascism. Also, I think I keep foreshadowing them and accidentally keep putting off their planned introduction, but... Note that Estabrooks's tenure at Harvard likely overlapped with Murray and or Langer, even if they weren't at Harvard at exactly the same time. Their respective stints were definitely close. I checked, and it looks like Estabrooks received his doctorate the same year that Murray was hired as Morton Prince's assistant following the opening of the Harvard Psychological Clinic. I have to do some further digging to confirm it, but I'm also pretty sure that this McDougall, Estabrook's dissertation supervisor, also figures into the Murray and Langer stories. This is probably as good a point as any to insert a bit of info about the psych clinic, where hypnotherapy was practiced on World War I veterans and its formation. Dr. Henry Murray started at the Harvard Psychological Clinic under Morton Prince in 1926. He was first set up with the full-time assistantship via L.J. Henderson before eventually succeeding Prince as director, at which point Langer was hired on as assistant, following the dissolution of his School for Troubled Boys, which we'll get to. Prince was known for his work on hypnosis and had even taken his mother to Salpêtrière in the previous century, where he observed Dr. Charcot, another major hypnotherapy practitioner, if I remember correctly. Further underlining our quick stopover in Massachusetts, guess which families the president of Harvard in 1926 hailed from. 
both the Lowell's and Lawrence's, of course. It's also important to know that the Harvard Psych Clinic already had $140,000 in financing prior to its approval by the university. A handsome sum back then. Evidently, the clinic invited a fair bit of controversy among other members of the faculty. An interesting anecdote regarding the controversy over President A. Lawrence Lowell's unilateral approval of the formation of the clinic and its placement within the psych and philosophy department is the fact that Alfred North Whitehead was uneasy about the prospect of having the clinic on campus as he thought hypnosis was dangerous. Whitehead's uneasiness comes across as all the more prophetic when you think about the kinds of shitty, MKUltra human experiments Dr. Henry Murray would be getting up to just a few decades later. Henry A. Murray, after receiving his medical degree at Columbia University and PhD at Cambridge University, embarked on one of the most diverse, interesting, and creative careers currently represented in the membership of the American Psychological Association. His shift in interest from medicine to biochemistry to psychology are all reflected in his unique contributions to the understanding of human personality. Among his many contributions, his 1938 book entitled Explorations in Personality, his development of the widely used projective measure of personality, the thematic apperception test, his unique analyses of Herman Melville and Moby Dick, all are examples of historical contributions of an unusually creative quality. His association with individuals such as Morton Prince at Harvard and Carl Jung in Zurich enriched his own perspective and thus the field of the psychology of personality. Currently a professor emeritus at Harvard University, he is still actively involved in an exciting program of research, writing, and lecturing, and remains in touch with Harvard's historically significant psychological clinic, which he directed for so many years. It was to us a privilege to conduct this interview with Dr. Murray in the living room of his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The clinic was initially founded through an endowment from Morton Prince, who served as its first director. Morton Prince also came from a wealthy Brahmin family. Throughout Prince's brief term in the twilight of his career and the beginning of Murray's tenure, the clinic was seemingly entirely subsidized by the endowment, some of which came from Prince's wealthy lawyer Boston Brahmin brother. There were also a few anonymous donations. Early in Murray's tenure, the Committee on Industrial Fatigue also financed the clinic. During the Depression, Murray would ultimately turn to his connections at the Rockefeller Foundation, where he'd worked before Harvard, technically at the Institute for Medical Research, I believe. Murray secured first a short-term and then soon yearly monies from the foundation. Some of this last bit I've gotten from a dissertation titled Henry A. Murray and the Harvard Psychological Clinic, 1926-1938, that might be worth a read for the real M.K. heads. Chances are there are a couple diamonds in the rough there. I also feel duty-bound to point out that although Murray was apparently less of a proponent of traditional hypnosis than Dr. Prince, 
he was still directly involved in hypnotherapeutic practices. At the very least, during the early years of the clinic. This doesn't downplay Murray's involvement in MK efforts. Not in the slightest. All it says is that he thought other methodologies were more effective, perhaps like the dizzying and dissociation-inducing verbal abuse Ted K. was subjected to, or the experimentation of psychoactive substances on students that Leary ran and Murray oversaw. Another fact about Dr. Henry Murray to keep in mind as we juxtapose him with the other early MK pioneers we're examining. During his time as director of the Harvard Psych Clinic in the 20s and 30s, Murray formulated a system of quote-unquote personology that is undergirded by his system of needs. Quoting from Wikipedia here, quote, Murray divided personology into five principles. 1. Cerebral physiology, rooted in the brain, governs all aspects of personality. 2. People act to reduce physiological and psychological tension to gain satisfaction, but do not strive to be tension-free and rather cycle between seeking excitement, activity, and movement in their lives, and then relaxing. 3. An individual's personality continues to develop over time, and is influenced by all of the events that occur over a person's lifetime. 4. Personality is not fixed, and it can change and progress. And five, each person has some unique characteristics and others which are shared by everyone. Murray's theory of personality is rooted in psychoanalysis, and the chief business and aim of personology is the reconstruction of the individual's past life experiences in order to explain their present behavior. To study personality, Murray used free association and dream analysis to bring unconscious material to light. End quote. Both personology and Murray's thematic apperception test, which he designed in the late 30s with his Harvard lover Christiana Morgan, informed Murray's work in devising tests determining the suitability of recruits for both British intelligence and then later the Office of Strategic Services. The TAT basically uses redirection to get a subject to reveal their underlying motivations, past experience, and personality through their interpretation of ambiguous situations. I haven't looked into it deeply, but it almost seems like a storytelling exercise of sorts. Murray first consulted with British Intel, helping them with their recruitment systems. He then wrote the official guide for the, quote, assessment of OSS personnel, end quote, for Bill Donovan and company during his time as a lieutenant colonel. 
Probably the two most notable aspects of Murray's wartime service are the assessment and the fact he assisted Walter Langer, Walter Langer with the psychoanalysis report of Hitler. We're going to get to it eventually and do a short dive into Langer's life, but one thing I want to state outright now is that it appears the most compelling pieces of evidence supporting the likelihood Hitler was hypnotized by Dr. Edmund Forster are the now declassified naval intelligence report by the Austrian Dr. Karl Kroner, in which he testifies to the veracity of the claims. Kroner was a co-worker of Forster's at Passavok. You also have the novel written by Ernst Weiss, entitled The Eyewitness, which was based in large part off of Hitler's medical files, and Langer and Murray's OSS report. Note that the Kroner memo and Langer's report were both authored in 1943, the very same year Estabrooks's Hypnotism was first published. Interesting. We'll return to the psychopathography of Hitler a little later. One other curious intersection. Murray's lover. Christiana Drummond Morgan, another Bostonian, was a Harvard-educated artist and amateur psychoanalyst. As we'll see a little later, Murray and Langer were hugely indebted to the work of both Freud and Jung. In the 1920s, Christiana traveled to Zurich to sit and work on her integration with the younger master. Quote, when Jung met Morgan, he considered her the manifestation of the perfect feminine, un femme inspiratrice, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, whose role was to act as a muse to great men. Jung conducted a seminar called the quote-unquote vision seminar, analyzing Morgan's many drawings and dreams, chronicling her archetypal encounters in her quest for psychological integration, end quote. I find these connections very interesting as it's well known that Carl Jung adopted a more collaborative approach with the Nazis than those indebted to his theories would care to admit. The sharpest critics would even contend that he may have welcomed Nazism and Gleichschaltung, the Nazi regulations that enforced conformity to NS cultural values in civil society, as it presented a means of overcoming his mentor and molding psychoanalysis in Europe in his theoretical image. I'm not saying that this is the case. I'm simply saying some have made those claims. The reality is that there was even an abortive attempt to have him tried during the Nuremberg trials. He obviously avoided prosecution, but seems worth pointing out. I'm not knowledgeable enough about Yoon's theories and life to give a take yet, but there's a chance we'll return to parsing his political statements and activities among psychoanalytic societies in Europe during the Nazi Party's reign once I do some more reading. 
Let's get back to that other Harvard Crimson, the hypnosis diehard that we had been discussing before we briefly switched to Murray. A few more bits and pieces. This Masonic Templar got married in Rome on July 20th, 1933. Wow, so cute, a 33-degree wedding. He was a member of the APA and Theta Chi. He also corresponded with Wild Bill Donovan during World War II, further illustrating the American Legion founder's role in laying the pre-MK-Ultra groundwork. A 1949 interview with Estabrooks contains further breadcrumbs leading to the hypnofascists' role in formulating pre-MKUltra military mind control methods. Once again, World War I's impact is made explicit. According to George, soldiers suffering quote-unquote shell shock are the ideal hypnotic subjects. This article is also interesting, as it seems indicative of propaganda, either written by a CIA asset or else encouraged by the agency. The whole reason the interview even exists appears to have been to disseminate rumors that the Cardinal Menzenti's confession during his trial in communist Hungary was extracted under hypnotic duress. By the way, this Cardinal Josef Menzenti guy was a bit of a goof. He was a diehard monarchist. He took his ring-sucking ways to the grave, evidently. Granted, <laughs> sorry, ring-sucking. Uh, granted, he did oppose fascism in Hungary to some degree, which saw him imprisoned for refusing to quarter soldiers during the Arrow Cross Party government. Although I'm not an expert on Minzenti, it seems he spent more of his life fighting against communists and socialists in Hungary than he did fascists. And I would venture out on a limb that his relationship with the fascists was slightly more amicable than it was with Hungarian communists, when he denounced the quote-unquote greens of the Arrow Cross Party, he compared them to communists. Classic monarchist bullshit. Even prior to World War II, when he was a Jude Law young Pope-style young bishop. <laughs> I don't actually know that. Um, I haven't seen pictures of young Minzenti. Uh, he, he might very well have been um, nothing like the young Pope at all. Um, but anyways, he bucked against multiple socialist governments in Hungary. Anyways, something that I found especially funny while doing some very light studying on Minzenti is the fact that he was evidently so bothered by communism in Hungary that he called the U.S. Embassy and tried to offer his services. This was before he was imprisoned and G.H. Estabrooks was interviewed about him. This cardinal was so bold in begging the United States to do something, anything, to intervene and prevent communism from taking root in Hungary that the embassy felt like they had to formally rebuke him which they did, 
shooting down the requests he'd made, which were, quote, simply not diplomatically proper or politically feasible, end quote. So what does this tell us about the fact that G.H. Estabrooks was called upon to defend this cardinal's honor in American papers, this prince primate who would have gladly wrecked the newly formed communist government in his home country from the safety of his cardinal palace and traded it in for American boots on the ground, if at all possible. Kinda get the sense. Both of them were rubbing elbows with American intelligence. About the phrase Prince Primate or Primate, Minzenti was such an arrogant knob that he insisted on being referred to by this ugly-ass handle, even after the new communist government had outlawed aristocratic titles. Reading a couple quotes here from the interview with uh, our guy Estabrooks in this article titled The Power of Hypnotism by Kenneth O. Smith from 49. Quote, Recently, for example, a Colgate University psychologist discussed the possible use of hypnotism by the Russians in connection with the quote-unquote confessions and courtroom behavior of Cardinal Minzenti and the Bulgarian Protestant clergyman. Dr. George H. Estabrooks, who is head of the Department of Psychology at Colgate and a nationally recognized authority on hypnotism, declared it would have been entirely possible to get these confessions by hypnotism, especially if preceded by brutal treatment, quote within the quote here, granting the brutality which would make it a chore to hypnotize the victim. Cardinal Minzenti, for instance, it would be another mere chore to get rapid control over the subject familiar to those who have studied the application of hypnotism to war, Dr. Estabrook says. Another quote, this done, Cardinal Minzenti could have been hypnotized as often as desired, for example, ten times in a single hour. The beginning of a psychic battering which, I believe, no human mind could endure. End of the Estabrooks quote. Recent news dispatches from Vienna quoted the cardinal's physician as saying the imprisoned primate now is a quote-unquote physical wreck. His condition is attributed to drugs and mistreatment suffered by the cardinal before his trial. Now, skipping ahead a bit, Estabrooks here describes the procedure he would follow if he had been the operator in this case, and if he were without scruple, to use his wording. Quote, I would throw in everything I had to induce confusion, doubt, and uncertainty concerning the past, and I believe that within 24 hours I could reduce the subject to a state of disintegration this done, I would reintegrate his personality along lines dictated by me. This damn dog, I'm sorry. Along lines dictated by me, until he was thoroughly convinced that he was guilty of all the things I wished him to confess. The result would be that strange change in personality 
shown at the trial, and the same procedure could be used with the clergymen in Bulgaria. End quote. Men certainly can be hypnotized without their consent, the Colgate psychologist says. He adds that there is every reason to believe men actually can be hypnotized against their will by the use of drugs and a general breakdown of morale through strain and the loss of sleep. Big end quote. A little later on in this article, Dr. Astabrooks admits to uh, repeatedly hypnotizing one of his students without their consent. As you can see, in this 75-year-old article, Dr. Estabrooks outlined some of the basic methodologies that were exercised in both MKUltra and which continue to be utilized in inhumane interrogations in extrajudicial prisons like Gitmo today. This is the story of a 30-year search by U.S. intelligence agencies to perfect mind control. Some of those engaged in that search have agreed to talk about it for the first time. One said, I think every last one of us felt sorry to attempt this kind of thing. We knew we were crossing the line. The search would be endless. From brothels, an agent says, we learned a lot about human nature in the bedroom to the mystical rites of a magical mushroom ceremony performed by an Indian shaman, to a Spanish bull ring. The bull has had electrodes implanted in the brain and is controlled by a scientist. There would be victims. Oh, just... <laughs> One intelligence agency tried to peel this man's mind back to reveal its deepest secrets. I lived through it. I lived through it. This man worked on some of these programs. He would write of his work, it was fun, fun, fun. This is the story of the search for mind control. ABC News close-up, Mission Mind Control. Can I buy you? Allow me. Two Michelob lights. Michelob makes a light beer? Perfect. The good taste of Michelob light. Mrs. Cooper, huh? I need help. Oh. With all these different dog foods, I don't know what kind to feed him. Dry, soft. Honey, it's not the form. It's the formula. The Cycle 2 formula has just what dogs in their active years need to help stay healthy. <laughs> and happy. With Cycle, I know what to feed him. Now get Cycle 2 in 25-pound bags. It was the Cold War, and especially the trial of Joseph Cardinal Menzenti, who was forced to testify in a Hungarian court that he was a spy. And then later, the Korean War, with the coerced and mainly fraudulent confessions of American servicemen. My information took place on the... That would spark intense interest in intelligence circles about brainwashing. The CIA secretly commissioned a study of communist brainwashing methods at the Cornell University Medical Center. A leader of that study was Dr. Lawrence Hinkle. He explains first the Russian method of controlling and breaking a person. Absolutely isolated from everyone else with one man whose job it is to get you to write the extent to which you are a criminal. In this setting, you can get people to do most anything, do you see? Because you don't have to lay a hand on and by the time you get through and you go up before the judge, the fellow says, were you a spy? He says, yes, I was a spy. The, the, the Chinese never really had this kind of a state police system. They would get him in and all this fellow does is ask you to write, rewrite, rewrite, and talk to him about your whole life. He graduated from pilot training in 1949. While the purpose of the study was to find out about communist brainwashing techniques, CIA documents show that the agency was interested in developing mind control methods of its own to precondition and control Chinese living in this country 
to be sent back to their homeland as CIA agents. What do you think they were looking for? Well, I think they, no, they weren't looking for, they weren't looking for agents or anything like that. Yet the agency's perception of the work you were doing, in CIA documents uh, we have examined, yeah. it says that the, the, the project that was being done here, yeah. uh, they intended to use everything learned about the new agents to induce them to, quote, to perform acts of a complex, purposeful nature. Yeah, but that was the never done. The effects of which may be out of keeping with the individual's that previous behavior. That sort of thing was never done. Those people were not, uh, that, that was, when they first came here, the first people they sent up to see us, do you see, were, uh, were operational type people from the CIA with some rather, rather wild ideas. Okay, this is their perception of it, if, if I could no, just continue. No, it wasn't their perception of it either. No, it wasn't. Dangerous to his being, contrary yeah, to any previous that, consciously expressed see, intentions and interests, here, contrary to the good no. of the individual, and subversive to the goals yeah, for which he is consciously working. I understand working. all this talk. But the situation was, you see, those things were never done because of wise people on both sides. We were not able to do this and are interested in it. They and, were, though. Uh, some of the low-level people were, but the high-level people were not. But documents clearly show that the CIA was attempting to develop agents over whom they had as much control as possible. Agents who would perform tasks contrary to their own good. Normally conditioned American has been trained to kill and then to have no memory of having killed. His brain has not only been washed, as they say, it has been dry cleaned. <laughs> Is a Manchurian candidate, controlled by others, to do things against his will, possible? I would say the answer is yes, but there are many qualifications to that. Dr. Milton Klein, a psychologist, a clinical and experimental hypnotist, and unpaid consultant to the CIA. The qualifications would be the subject selected to produce the kind of behavior that you wish, the amount of time, the procedures that are utilized, and the motivations of the people who are designing, executing, and administering the procedures. You're asking whether an individual can be, under hypnosis, influenced, coerced, persuaded, shaped to perform an antisocial act or a destructive act or an act of violence. My answer would be yes.